Hello, everybody, uh, wherever you are listening, and uh, welcome to another episode in our long-running series of financial well-being podcasts. My name's David Lloyd, bon viveur, acteur, broadcaster, man about town, recently retired but not retired because I'm still working, very happily ensconced in a new house. Yeah, life is good. And one of the reasons life is good, because every so often I get to do podcasts with these two wonderful people. The first of whom is going to introduce himself now. Chris Budd, who are you? I'm Chris Budd. Hello, everybody. I wrote the Financial Wellbeing book. My day job is I help companies with succession planning, but I also write novels. And uh, I just want to make one comment to everybody at the very early stage, David. Uh, we'd love to hear more from our listeners. We have a Twitter account at Finn Wellbeing, but we also have an email address. So if anybody wants to just share their thoughts, maybe share a tight ass Tomo tip with us, we really, really, really would love to get more listeners uh, getting involved in this in this podcast. So the email address is contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. It is, of course, in show notes, etc., but not everybody always reads all of those. So I just wanted to encourage people to get in touch with any tips, any ideas, any thoughts about mm. the show, anything you like. And what's the Twitter handle, Chris? at finwellbeing excellent good yes because we really do enjoy getting uh, contact with our listeners so please do email in twitter in you know send carrier pigeons whatever you want tomo who are you i am tom morris charter financial planner by day and director over at ovation finance in bristol and also by night a father who is currently helping their nine-month-old with teething issues. So excuse me if I'm a little bit groggy and a little bit short and have zero patience for both of your rubbish humour. So, yeah, there's your warning. But you're like that all the time. There's nothing new How will we know? <laughs> <laughs> right, so how's, how's life with you, Chris? I would say life's all right. I mean, I think like all of us, standing in the same room for the last 18 months has been a little bit strange on the brain. But uh, but yeah, we're coming through, aren't we now? I think things are looking up a bit. Yes, well, let's hope that is the case. Let's hope that is the case. Right. So what have we got on today's podcast, Chris? What's happening? Are we talking about something? Have you interviewed somebody? We have an interview with the amazing Catherine Morgan. Now, Catherine is a financial coach, used to be a financial advisor, We'll talk a little bit about what that means, why there's a difference between the two. But she's got some really, really interesting insights about our relationship to money. So, yeah, interview with Catherine Morgan coming up. And what's incredibly special about this interview is the fact that of all the people you've interviewed, she's the only person I've ever actually met. <laughs> she was she was on the panel at the very first financial well-being conference that we did uh, last year, or was it the year before? I can't remember. Two years uh, ago. Two years two ago. Two years ago. Blimey. Uh, uh, under the shadow of the wings of Concord. And very good she was too. So I'm looking forward to that interview. But before we do that, let's go on to our two regular features. First up, we have Beige's Biases, where an old friend of the podcast, behavioural finance expert Neil Beige, gives us his one-minute introduction to a different behavioural bias that affects how we make decisions about money. Chris, what is Neil telling us about this week? Neil is telling us about the decoy effect. The decoy effect. The decoy effect is where we as consumers change our preference between two options when we are presented with a third option, the decoy. Let me give you an example that is the most used in the world of behavioural science. 
Imagine you go to a cinema and see two options for popcorn. A small popcorn costs you £3 and a large costs £7. The evidence suggests that most people, when faced with these two options, go for the small popcorn that only costs £3. However, add a third option, a decoy, a medium popcorn for £6.50 and now... Well, most people will now go for the large. It's only 50p more than the medium size, and you seem to get so much more value for money. The simple fact is, by adding in a decoy, we end up spending more money than we would if the decoy didn't exist in the first place. So I think this is a really good example of how behavioural finance, mostly we've tried to present it in a really positive way about be aware of your behaviors, et cetera, et cetera. This is a really good example of how our behaviors can actually work against us to make bad financial decisions. And that's why we keep bringing them out and why Neil does such a great job of telling us about them so that we can be aware of what forces are being applied to us to get us to spend more money. That's very, very interesting, that particular example. And it leads us actually quite nicely into our next feature, which is tight as Tomo. Uh, and about how we can save money by adopting Tomo's tips. But before we come on to Tomo, that's just uh, given me an idea for one, listening to what Neil had to say there is, don't buy popcorn in cinemas. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's horrible. I can't stand... I don't mind a mouthful of popcorn. I don't want to sit there wading through a huge bucket of it. It costs them about 20p to produce, and they sell it on at a ridiculous price, and you just end up getting it in your shoes when you walk out at the end. So there's my tight-ass tip. Don't buy popcorn. Take a sandwich instead. I don't think that's tight-ass at all. Take a sandwich? A little pat lunch with a little... Exactly, yeah, yeah. Take a sandwich and a thermos flask with a bit of tea in it. Uh, (laughs) No, no. You see, I'm a massive fan of the Wittertainment podcast, Kermod and Mayo's Wittertainment podcast, which I listen to every single week. And they have a... And hello to Jason Isaacs, by the way. And they have a, a, a code, a cinema code, Basic rule is don't take any food into the cinema. You're only in there for two hours. Eat something before and after. Don't eat it in the cinema because all that rustling and noise is ruining it for somebody else. You've got me going on one here, David. Blimey! There is an exception to this rule, though. Soft fruit only. Uh, but I mean, come on, really watch a movie at home or in the cinema without a bag of Maltesers? Yes, out there. They're the worst. The rustling and noise. <laughs> oh God! Mind you. I do love a Malteser. I know, right? Don't have them you're sat at hand. Yeah, would I, would, I wouldn't have one in the cinema. No, I'd be too busy eating my cheese and pickle sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, damn it. I was trying to... Put, I was not going to laugh at your rubbish jokes, but I failed. <laughs> uh, you've done it. We've we've cheered up grumpy Tomo. Yeah. We've cracked him. We've cracked you can him. Now, you can now cheer us all up, Tomo, with your tight-ass Tomo tip. Um, I, I I hope this one cheers you up. Before I do, I think it's only fair that that I give a little bit of a shout out to Neil's uh, own podcast, which is called the Bite Size Behaviour Podcast with Neil Beige, where he go he, he elaborates a bit more on some of these. So so well worth uh, looking at if you're interested. Well, I I wouldn't say the opposite end of the age scale to you, but I'm I'm in the as discussed at the start of the pod i'm i'm in the eye of the storm with a young family look i've got to stop this these terms the eye of a lovely experience that is going to give me so much joy and happiness over the years but it's relevant because in august and i'm hoping this podcast comes out in time for this tip if not think about this for next year um (laughs) 
it's something called Kids Week that officiallondontheatre.com put on. And it's for, I think, theatres in London. Go and check. It might be around around the nation. But you're able to buy a ticket as an adult and there's significant discount for children that go with you. Obviously, the idea being it's school holidays. They're trying to fill the stalls and obviously make it a cheaper day out for a family to go to the theatre. So it's Kids Week, officiallondontheatre.com forward slash kids dash week details will be in the show notes but i thought that was a pretty useful thing to fill time in the summer holidays you know david i fondly reminisce on the days when tomo's tight ass tips were funny not really useful and practical <laughs> hey look i've got some gems lined up for you guys but i needed to get this one in because it is we, we got a time timer but don't worry i'm going to embarrass myself on the next one so so <laughs> listen out and if this one does come out for August 2021, remember that you can probably pick up an extra free case of COVID at the same time. <laughs> 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 yes, please theatre responsibly. <laughs> right, that's enough of that nonsense. Chris, why don't you tell us about your interview with Catherine Morgan? So I've known Catherine for quite a few years. And to be honest with you, I'm not quite sure why she hasn't been on the podcast before, because she's absolutely fabulous. And she is a financial coach. She has been a financial planner as well. She just trains financial coaches. She's just all around really knowledgeable person about our relationship with money. So let's have a listen to my chat with Catherine Morgan. Morning, Catherine. How are you? Morning, Chris. Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, very, very good. I'd I, is it starting this uh, chat with you slightly differently because of course we know each other extremely well so I'm not going to pretend that you know hi welcome to the podcast it's really nice to meet you rubbish we know each other really well don't we <laughs> yeah it's like oh god have I got to talk to you again Chris this week <laughs> <laughs> I love that thing when you see it on uh, on, on tv program documentaries and stuff where a camera crew go up to the knock on the door and a member of the public opens the door and says oh hello as if they haven't all set it up for the last hour <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah oh you've won a competition oh have I <laughs> <laughs> so look, I would like you to just start off uh, by explaining to our listeners what financial coaching or money coaching, what it actually is, because you're the person bringing this to the masses as far as I'm concerned. Oh, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. I, 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 I'm certainly not um, the pioneer of financial coaching by any stretch of imagination, but certainly what I found over the last sort of four or five years of working in that space is that for me what centers around the decisions that people make around money is all about our beliefs. It's, you know, things that we've heard growing up, our sense of purpose, what drives us, some of our pre-existing beliefs that we've literally just grown up with since, since day dot. And for me, the work as a financial coach is about understanding that client's relationship to money, because we know that most of the decisions that we make come from what we call our unconscious beliefs, things that we aren't even paying any attention to and and that can can make a big difference between what action we take what decisions we do and don't make around money can also have a huge impact on our financial well-being and how we feel because ultimately what drives the behaviors that we take around money is how we feel and what drives how we feel about money is what we're thinking about in the first place and some of those thinking processes are conscious and some of them are unconscious so financial coaching for me is really about understanding what, what is our relationship with money before we then go on to do all the practical steps that, let's face it, we all know we should be doing, but we don't always take action 
that's the power of financial coaching for me. And, and as a financial planner or as, or as a financial coach, the ability to sit and listen to the client and really explore with them, get them to think about what their relationship is with money rather than us actually coming up with the solutions. There's a big difference between coaching and planning or advice because that's where we put our kind of solution hats on, so to speak. So coaching is really about the client doing the deep and meaningful change work, not the other way around. Do you think that it's easy to not give advice? No, it's one of the biggest challenges, I would say, from working with financial planners and advisors. One of the biggest things is self-disclosure and interference. And they, they talk about this in the medical profession, don't they, around, you know, should you have transference of uh, patient-doctor kind of relationship? And it's kind of similar, I think, to the, the role between the client and the advisor. Self-disclosure is a really interesting one because it's built into our human DNA to be inquisitive, to be curious. And what happens is that self-disclosure elicits more, uh, more likelihood that the client will share. So if we share some of our story with the client, this is the power of storytelling, is that they're more likely to then share things back. But what we have to be mindful of then is listening to the client and switching off our kind of human reaction to just ask those questions. And you know, you know, like when we ask a question and then you ask a second question before you've even allowed the person to answer the first question, we have this kind of natural wantingness to be curious. Um, But what happens is that when we have our own sense of purpose, we have our own sense of beliefs around money, we have our own stories about money, we have our own judgments around money, all of these um, human biases can have a huge impact then on how our client feels. Um, And I see that time and time again with advisors is that that's the hardest skill is to actually go into a client meeting completely neutral of our beliefs, um, our stories, our messages we've heard, our personal experiences, because otherwise there is that risk that the client will either answer based on what they think they should say because they're sitting in front of us or those beliefs will be cross-referenced to the client and the client will, will then not have that opportunity to really share what's in their subconscious belief system. I'm just thinking while you were saying about you know, really good listening skills and I'm, and I'm finding myself, yeah, I, I remember when I had a particular meeting that I was really good at, oh, cracking, I've lost. <laughs> you can't help yourself, can you, to, to, to put yourself into the situation. It's, it's just a natural thing to do. It's like, you know, when you say to that person, or you listen to somebody who said uh, they had a lovely holiday in Italy and you immediately start thinking about that really funny story you've got when you were in Naples, you know, and you're not listening anymore. It's just, it's social etiquette in a way, isn't it? It it is. And that's the challenge, isn't it? It's like, where is that boundary? When do you listen? And when do you participate? And I think that in a coaching relationship, you can do both. But in a pure coaching capacity, you want ideally kind of 90% of that conversation to be coming from the client and 10% to be coming from the coach. So one of the, the skills is kind of learning to listen and feedback and kind of, you know, checking for accuracy when the client says something rather than like Chris, you might say something like, Oh, I went to Spain on holiday this year. And when I was a kid, like my dad used to tell me this about money, that your natural reaction is to be like, Oh yeah, I went to Spain and I went and stayed in this house and it was beautiful. It was right by the sea and there was all these trees blowing in the wind and you start to go down your story. 
and that's really difficult to do. So one of the skills is just about listening, repeating back what you heard the clients say and checking for some accuracy. So, you know, oh, I heard you say this. Tell me a bit more about that. Or what did I miss in that conversation? And then maybe once they finish that story, you could then share with them a very short snippet of your experience. The purpose of that is to align uh, empathy, sympathise with the client, rather than to be sharing a story at its own sake. Yeah, I think we, we want to talk about ourselves because we want that sense of belonging, don't we? And we want to be liked. Well, I'm also and... really interesting. <laughs> Far more interesting than the person I'm talking to, usually, frankly. <laughs> well, and, and, and that's it, isn't it? Is that we think that, well, we want to dominate the conversation because we're interesting and we want to be liked and we want that sense of belonging and that sense of community and that sense of purpose. And sharing those stories with each other and having you know dialogue between each other is will create that. But when you're in that coach capacity, the challenge there is that we know from research that if a client has more radio time in their meeting, they have much more significant change. And, and that's really powerful to think about. Next time you go out to the pub or you're chatting to a friend or you're interviewing someone on their podcast, then if you just sit back and ask loads of really great questions and not and kind of almost like hold that back, which is really difficult to do, but hold that natural reaction back to share your stories you'll find that when the client has finished that meeting, they'll feel more fulfilled because they've been heard. They've been given that space to share things about themselves that perhaps nobody's ever asked them before. So if a person is going to go and see a financial coach or a money coach, and we won't worry about the distinction between the two, if I can lump those together for the moment, then they should expect to be doing most of the talking and maybe to be challenged on a few of their assumptions that they didn't know they had. Is that a reasonable summation? Yes, yes. Cool. And I suspect that is a significant difference for most people than when they go and see their financial advisor. Yeah, and and sometimes it depends on what the client needs and what they're ready for, because one of the things I, I would say with financial coaching is the client has to be ready for that change work. They have to be in a state of ambivalence. If they're not in that state of ambivalence, they're not ready for change. Yeah. And if they're not ready for change, then they're not going to be motivated. They're not going to have the the meaning and purpose behind creating change. So uh, financial coaching isn't necessarily right for everybody at every step of the journey. But I do believe that unless we understand a client's thinking and feeling behind money and the, the meaning and purpose that they connect to money, then for me, the financial plan or the advice that's delivered afterwards won't work or it won't work as effectively won't have as much meaning certainly will it no so, absolutely so look I, I, you obviously run your training course for financial advisors to learn financial coaching skills but early days for, for this whole process and i think it's reasonable to say would you agree that somebody should really at the moment or could at the moment have both a financial advisor and a financial coach and both can work alongside each other and work well together yes i, I do I, I think that there's merits of just having financial coaching on its own and I, I'm a big believer in that should be step one and I won't take on any regulated financial work with a client until I've done financial coaching with them and that, that's just my choice 
but I think that there's also the ability for a, a regulated financial advisor to incorporate elements of coaching into their practice. So there's lots of tools and exercises that I teach advisors to use where they can just gently nurture that into the work they're already doing. Now, the benefit of that as opposed to a pure coaching meeting is that if they've got an existing established relationship with a client and they're just wanting to um, to dig deeper into that relationship, because really that's what it's all about. It's all about relationship creation. Then they can do that in a way where they start to implement coaching into their practice. So one of the things I do is to have what I call a storytelling meeting with a client. So either right at the very start of onboarding a new client or if I've got an existing relationship with a client, I'll have a, an independent storytelling meeting with them. And in that storytelling meeting, that's where I want to get really, really deep with their beliefs around money. Um, and what meaning are they attaching to money? So, for example, if I've got a client who is always picking up the phone when the stock markets go down because they're catastrophizing situations, they're going into that kind of catastrophic thinking then I really want to help them to see the benefits of releasing some of that and letting go of some of the stories of the future, which is really what catastrophic thinking is all about. So that next time that happens, they're less likely to feel that anxiety. And if they're less likely to feel that anxiety and get that emotional flooding that happens in the brain, then I'm more likely to get a better outcome for the client and the client is more likely to get a better outcome because they'll sleep at night. <laughs> so I think that there's, there's definitely an opportunity for different skills to be gently nurtured into a regulated meeting, but also for it to be a standalone service. Yeah, yeah. You brought us very nicely then onto the, what was, I was going to say it was going to be our main subject, but we got really interested <laughs> into an interesting subject of what financial coaching is. But let's let's look at the the six reasons people feel anxiety. I'm assuming I'm going to give this a go. Catastrophizing is <laughs> is that one of those six? Yeah. So I've kind of lumped this into like just human biases in general. Um, and I know Chris, you've done a lot of work around this with Neil Beige with uh, you know behavioural finance. But you know our natural human biases is definitely an area that can cause financial anxieties and catastrophic thinking is definitely one of them but but also what's interesting for me is that the, the brain does have certain biases so we are programmed to stay busy we're programmed to conserve energy we're programmed to pay attention to the here and now so when a financial planner or advisor or a client's thinking okay so I need to relax I've got to meditate I need to exercise regularly I need to think about my financial future what I'm going to do when I retire you're automatically going against what the brain you know, wants to do naturally because the brain's purpose is to protect. Otherwise, it goes into fight or it goes into flight mode. So the, with that message and that belief, well, if we're programmed to stay busy, it's going to be really hard to meditate. We're programmed to conserve energy. So when we tell ourselves, oh, I need to start going to the gym a bit more often, you can see that if the motivation's not there and the thinking's not there, then it's going to be really, really difficult. I'm really glad you've used that example because that explains why I don't go to the gym. Thank you. <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm definitely with you on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so are, we, uh, are you able to list the six reasons people feel anxiety and then, we, and then we can go through them? Yeah, sure. So the first one then is human biases. The second is comparing ourselves. The third one is emotions override logic. The fourth is our belief system. The fifth is being unprepared. And the sixth is physical well-being versus mental well-being. I probably could have listed another three, actually, but those are the six main ones. 
Okay. So what have we touched on already? We've touched on human biases. Let's let's have a look at comparisons then. Yeah. So this is a really interesting one for me because uh, comparisonitis is you know it that its main objective is to compare ourselves to other people. Um, to anchor our self-worth on everybody else's life. You know, we, we, we hear this common phrase about keeping up with the Joneses, for example. Now, all that does, it's a natural bias is to compare ourselves, but all that does is to create a sense of lack. So it just highlights what we don't actually have rather than what we do have. So practicing gratitude and actually identifying your own sense of purpose, your own identity, your self-worth, will actually really help to remove any of those anxieties that we feel when we start comparing ourselves to everybody else. Because when we feel anxious about our, our own purpose or our, our own situation, is it then affects our whole ability to follow advice or to create any changes. Um, and, and, and if you think about it it's, it, it's giving away that power, isn't it? When you start to compare yourself to other people, you have no idea what's going on in their lives, really. Even your best friend, you don't necessarily know what's underneath everything. You don't know their financial situation. You don't know the state of their relationships, their well-being, their physical health, their mental health. And so all comparisonitis does is gives away your power to somebody else. And it's the small steps of imperfect action that create a good sense of well-being. And that's what we need to focus on. I love that Theodore Roosevelt quote, comparison is the thief of joy. Mm. which is in the space isn't it I, i'm going to do the very thing that we just said that you shouldn't do which is i just maybe me think of a little story because uh, it's about me a friend of mine sold his business for really quite a lot of money like several millions you know a lot mm. of money and lovely chap when he told me about this the rest of the weekend i was really fed up and it really affected me because I was thinking, what could I do with that money? And if only this, that and the other. And it got to the Sunday evening and I'd had a pretty miserable weekend, if I'm honest. And on the Sunday evening, I suddenly was walking along with the dog and I went, hang on a minute. The fact that he sold his business for lots of money literally has nothing to do with me at all. Mm. Well, I was, I was pleased for him, don't get me wrong. But it was also making, why is this making me feel sad? This is ridiculous. And I just, I just snapped out of it because I realised it literally had nothing to do with me. It made no difference to my life whatsoever. But it still affected me for about a day and a half, you know? It still got under yeah. the skin. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's natural, completely natural to, to compare yourself to somebody else, and particularly financially, because... And what's really at the core of that, Chris, is the meaning that you attach to that success, the meaning that you attach to the fact that he's just sold his business for a few million pounds, because you're starting to think about, well, what would I do with that money if I had that myself? And so it's the meaning that we attach to it, whether that's a sense of security, a sense of peace of mind, a sense of well-being, a sense of safety. I know, Chris, you'll be very familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And, you know, when, we, when those foundations shake, and many of us would have experienced that recently with COVID, um, with lockdown and people losing jobs and taking pay cuts and having, uh, you know, think areas of their work that were completely just disappeared overnight. That will rock that sense of security and safety. And so when we hear these stories from other people about, well, I've just sold my business for a few million pounds, then we start to question our own self-worth. Well, why haven't I done that? And I'm completely capable of doing that. And then you start to, to go into those negative emotions that we connect with money. Now, those negative emotions that we connect with money come from two main sources. They come from 
our personal relationship with money and our cultural influences around money. So culturally in Britain, for example, if you go right back to the aristocracy days, it was all about land and title. And if you didn't have land and you didn't have title, you had no value or worth in society. Now, whilst we don't have that cultural belief now, it sits in our British history. And so you can see that we learn about it in history at school. It's about land and title and who you marry and where you live. Um, And particularly as a man as well, it was all about being the provider, going out, doing work and being the provider. And so when we think about it, just culturally, that can have a huge impact, particularly for men on their position in the household when it comes to wealth creation. And that's when your meaning and purpose, when you hear stories from others, can start to uh, filter through those beliefs, not just culturally, but also your personal experiences and how you grew up around money. And if you think about them as like filters, your mind has to get through all of those filters before you can then do just as what you did, Chris, and bring yourself back to the present moment that actually this has nothing to do with me. This has nothing to do with my own ability. I feel like that we're talking about emotion over logic during all of this in many ways, aren't we? Mm. You know, that, that, the, of the ones that there was, I've got that right. Emotion over logic was one of the six I think you, you mentioned. I was furiously writing away as you were telling me. <laughs> but certainly that little story I just told, you know, that would definitely was me, me having emotion over, over logic. So I guess if emotion over logic is one of them, then what can we do to... Uh, stop ourselves from taking what is surely quite a natural reaction to be emotional rather than logical? Yeah, I think the first thing is to understand the triggers and then manage the emotion. So a lot of people talk about how negative anxiety can be and depression and things like that. They're not actually negative at all. They often serve to protect us and shield us away from harm and pain. So if you were to draw out on a piece of paper an arrow and in one direction you've got pleasure on one side and pain on the other it's about our brain's ability to protect us from pain and drive us towards pleasure now there's lots of human biases which i won't talk about right now but there's lots of biases that can um, talk about when we're driven more towards pleasure and away from pain loss aversion for example but when emotion overrides logic then it's either because we're trying to protect ourselves from pain and that may be because of a trigger of something that's happened in the past Financial forgiveness is a huge area of work. We often do have to forgive ourselves for things that have happened in the past because if we hold on to those beliefs, then they self-sabotage and they affect our sense of self-worth and well-being. So that's definitely one of those areas. But the, the emotion that we feel will be either what we think is negative, so anxious or stress, um, depression, those sorts of feelings, or we have positive emotions connect to Um, emotion so that could be happiness joy pleasure so the first thing is to understand when emotion overrides logic is almost thinking of that emotion almost like a sub-personality a completely different person so when when emotion plays highly for me in a negative way so for example I don't know let's say I was going to show up on a Facebook live and I'm thinking oh god I can't do that because I've got spots all over my chin and I, you know I haven't had my hair cut in 17 weeks and <laughs> we come up with all these reasons like that inner critic comes out if you think of that inner critic as a separate person and give it a name so my inner critic is called Emma and I have another one called Elvis but when Emma comes out <laughs> then I just think okay so what's she trying to tell me here is she trying to protect me 
or is she trying to give me a message of some description to maybe help me to do something that I may be just not feeling very confident enough to do? And understanding the triggers behind those emotions is really important. So one of the things that massively triggered me to overspend in my 20s was this overriding sense of unworthiness and body shame because I didn't feel comfortable with my body. I had eating disorders all through my teenage years and I was badly bullied at school. And so for me, every time I felt bad about myself, I would spend. And because the feeling was, well, if I spend money on clothes, I'll feel better about myself. But the trigger was not feeling good enough, not being worthy enough. And so I did a lot of work around just repeating to myself every day, I am worthy. I am good enough. I always have been and I always will be. And I had this like money mantra that I'd save on a screensaver on my phone. I'd have it written on my mirror when I was doing my makeup every morning. I'd have it, have it as anchor points when I was brushing my teeth. I'd have it on the mirror there. So that I constantly reaffirmed this belief that I didn't have growing up, that I was worthy and I was good enough. So understanding triggers and then managing the emotion to think about, okay, is this serving to protect me or is it there to self-sabotage? In which case, Emma, you can just, thank you very much for that message, but you can just disappear right now while I go and do that Facebook Live. <laughs> I thought you were going to use another word when you to, to Emma, just for a moment. <laughs> um, I don't like Emma very much. I don't like the sound of her. <laughs> it sounds to me, I mean, we're kind of running out of time, so we need to just go the last couple, but... I mean, thank you for sharing that, Catherine. And, and the message that I get from that is that this takes work. It's not something that's just going to happen. You're mm. just suddenly not going to become better, make, make much better money decisions. You do need to put a bit of effort into it. Yeah. And, and that, so that leads on to tip number four, which is about those beliefs. So just to kind of summarize that belief system and how it works, you know, we, money is largely emotional. It's the meaning that we attach to money that forms our set of beliefs and thoughts. Um, and so one of the great things to do is to think about what your money story is. What messages did you hear growing up about money that will then sit in your subconscious belief system, your unconscious belief system? And that becomes almost like a, a compass or a navigator that navigates our internal belief systems that drives how we behave. So if you've got a piece of paper and you're listening to this, write down three things. How we think, how we feel and how we behave. If you want to change how you behave around money or your well-being, you've got to first of all change how you think and how you feel. So how you change how you think is to start bringing some curiosity and awareness to what some of those money stories are because you're anchoring every thought about money on that belief system. And that's when you can create money blocks because you believe that money doesn't grow on trees because that's what your dad said. And that becomes your navigator. Well, if money doesn't grow on trees, I can, I'm never going to create enough of it. And that creates that feeling of not enoughness. So you can see where that, those kind of thoughts can develop into our behaviours around money. So the last couple that we have is being unprepared mm -hmm. and the physical versus mental. So um, what's the unprepared? I mean, that sounds like you just get prepared. <laughs> That's yeah. right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it sounds like really simple, right? But there's so, so often we don't get prepared. We don't get prepared because of inaction, because we don't feel confident enough. And that could be because you, you just need to go and learn about something. You need to learn how to go and budget or learn how to manage the emotions or learn how to um, implement 
different systems in your business, for example, or in your personal finances. That's just about understanding. But it is also connected very deeply to the, the emotional belief system. So that's why, you know, you can say, well, I'm not prepared. I haven't got a, um, a spending plan in place. But the reason you haven't got a spending plan, plan in place is, is likely to do with your belief systems and the so feelings that you're attaching to money. It's about taking those conscious steps, isn't it? I, I always... Um, yeah. I always uh, compare this to playing the guitar. So I, I play guitar, as anybody who's been on a Zoom meeting with me over the last three months know, it's not far away from coming out. <laughs> and um, a lot of people say, oh, you know, especially older people, I wish I'd played the guitar, but, you know, I'd never never really bothered. And I always say to people, well, go on then, learn to play the guitar. Oh, no, I, I'm too old now, I can't learn. Anybody can learn anything. Well, mm. Not quite anything. I'm never going to be any good at football, for example. But um, uh, anybody can learn to play an instrument. It doesn't matter uh, if it's just you're not very good. You still get joy from playing it. And I always say to people, 10 minutes every day. That's mm. all you need. If you picked up that guitar and just did a bit of practice for 10 minutes every day, within a year, you will be passable at playing the guitar. So you've just got to set aside some time and do something. So let's finish off then with physical versus mental. What, what's that all about, Catherine? I think that, that there's a, there is a big connection between our physical well-being and our mental well-being. And we do need to look after both. But often there's a clash, isn't there, between, well, there's all these things I want to do and learn. And, you know, actually, I'm not feeling great. And my mental health's not great. But my physical health's not great. So it is understanding that the two are very much connected. So the more you can do around your mental well-being will support your physical well-being and vice versa. Um, so things, simple things like, you know, having a gratitude diary or doing a daily mood analysis to just to bring some curiosity to, okay, so this is how I'm feeling. Um, or this is the problem for me right now. How do I support my mental and physical well-being? And, and we can all see from recent events of lockdown, um, if you're listening to this, um, well, we were recording in July 2020. So if you're listening to this right now, you're just, we're just coming out of lockdown. And our physical well-being and our mental well-being has been hugely stretched. So that it's a constant balance between the need to look after both. Because if you just focus on one and not the other, then it's not going to support your overall well-being and your mental well-being. A hundred percent. I really believe that financial well-being is not just about the practical stuff. It's not just about the practical stuff. It's actually more important to learn how you can influence and help how you feel about money first before you go on to the practical steps. Fantastic. Catherine, we could talk for hours. We know that because we have done. But <laughs> <laughs> this has been a fascinating overview. I would just mention a few of the other podcasts that we've had on similar subjects. Um, you've definitely covered different different topics, but we've had Simon Ganesson on quite some time ago. We've also had Mark Bristow, uh, Neil Bage and Greg Davis have talked to behavioural stuff. So we love all of this sort of things and you've brought some really interesting insights to it. Thanks. Really, really, really appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Really interesting chat that it struck me that Catherine is is a bit like a psychotherapist, really, in which it, it what she needs to do, and she talks about it in that interview, is to sit back, listen very carefully to what the client is saying, and then reflect it back in a way that they can learn from it. And I do like the way, Chris, and you you picked yourself up on it at the beginning of the interview you both agree that the worst thing that you could do as a financial coach is to introduce your own stories uh, into the meeting because by by doing that, the client might pick up on what you're saying and then perhaps reinvent what they're saying because they want to please you. And so it's very important that we sit back and 
and don't tell a story. And then halfway through, you went, oh, that reminds me of a story I want to tell about a guy that just sold his own business. And, and actually, the anecdote you gave was, was perfect, but it just goes to show. And the reason I recognise that in you, because I do that as well. You know, we, we always think we want to chip in with the story. Uh, I didn't ever say I was any good as a financial coach. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point I just want to make there actually about the, this word coaching, because it gets used a lot in a lot of different ways. And it's really important that the public know what they're getting when they go and see somebody. So we would talk with Ovation and with Tomo, we would talk about having a coaching first and then planning and then advice approach to financial planning. I've been talking at conferences for a decade now about this coaching, then planning, then advice. Coaching in this context, we're talking about using coaching skills, listening and questioning skills to help a client do the know thyself thing that we talk about, understand what will make them happy. OK, so it's really a very uh, broad use of the word. It's about listening and questioning skills. You don't bring any of your own agenda in. You just come in to help a client think. That's what we're talking about with coaching there. A financial coach will have those skills, but they are bringing in tools to talk about a specific topic, which is your relationship to money. So it's a different thing. It's still within the same um, world, if you see what I mean, but it's a different skill set. Um, there's one extra bit to add to that as well, which is if you go and see a financial coach, they are unregulated. They're not regulated by the FCA. They won't be giving you any investment advice or anything like that. They are merely, not merely, they are focusing on talking about your relationship with money. So actually, perfect world, you'll use a financial coach and then you'll go and see a financial advisor who uses that coaching skills, that coaching, then planning, then advice. That, for me, is the perfect combination. Excellent. And listening to Catherine, I found it very interesting in that, and I mean this it, with no disrespect intended to her at all, because I could listen to her all day, actually. But there wasn't anything that she told me that I kind of didn't know already through having done all of these podcasts that we've done. So she really reinforced a lot of the messages I think that we've been getting across, but did it in, in a way that I found quite compelling. And one of the things that I found over the years our next podcast will talk about self-determination theory, for example. It took me about eight readings of that idea to get my head around it. So actually, you do need the same thing said to you several times to really start to get into it. But Catherine also goes quite deep with this stuff when you get into some of her podcasts and some of her, the stuff that she does. She goes, it does get very much deeper into some of this relationship stuff. Yeah, and she's got her own website as well. So if you want to find out more about uh, Catherine and her work, uh, you can find her on Tinternet. Tomo, is there anything you'd like to add to this stage? Uh, no, other than we're trying to add something in the show notes, but I think I would echo everything you said. I've, I've known Catherine for a, a number of years now and she's doing some great work. So it was really, really great to have her on. And as Chris said, how it's taken this long for her to be on the podcast is beyond me, but she is now. So I hope you all enjoyed the interview. Excellent. Great. Well, as ever, it's been a, a huge pleasure to spend some time with you guys, if only virtually, maybe soon we'll be able to meet up and do this in the same room again. Or maybe we'll just decide we're going to carry on doing it remotely. Who knows? However, that's for you listeners to find out at some point in the future when we come back for another one of our financial well-being podcasts. If you want to be notified of upcoming podcasts, make sure you click the subscribe button. For more information on the topics discussed in today's podcast and to purchase a copy of the Financial Wellbeing book, please visit www.financialwell-being.co.uk. We'd love to hear your thoughts and ideas on financial well-being. 
you can send us an email at contact at financialwell-being.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at FinWellBeing. Chris is Ovation Chris, and David is at Dave underscore Backwell. This has been an Ovation Finance production. Thanks for listening to the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. More interesting than you might think. Thank you.